Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast, I'm Craig Kringle. Unless you're stupid, or just like basic curiosity, you've heard that line from Andy Williams and thought, why the hell's he talking about ghost stories in a Christmas song? Or maybe you're not exactly stupid, but just jumped to easy conclusions and thought, I guess he's talking about Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and left it at that. Or maybe you're a mature, educated person who has questions and actually pursues answers that satisfy both your intuitions and sense of reasonably acquired evidence. If so, then first, you're probably not American, and second, you learned about the tradition of Victorian ghost stories. Or maybe you just looked it up on your phone. But yes, ghost stories used to be a big, big part of Christmas, at least in England. In the States, we usually keep that stuff with Halloween. And even most versions of Dickens' story tone down the scarier aspects of Marley's ghost and the other three spirits. But even as recently as the 70s, there was a hugely popular British TV series called A Ghost Story for Christmas that got revived a while back by BBC Two and Four. So the tradition hasn't exactly gone away. But why? Where'd the tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve come from? Isn't that kind of counter to the whole thing about the sun coming back, days getting longer, Jesus being born, the world getting all saved and happy, and sin going bye-bye? Or even if you're cynical, isn't it just about presents and the visceral thrill of materialistic acquisition and giving? What does any of that have to do with the angry dead? Luckily, I've got answers, and because I'm so generous, I've got an actual ghost story for you, too. But before we get to those, a couple of things. First, the writing contest. The deadline is December 10th. That's 2018. I don't know how long this thing will survive on the internet, and I'm not sure I want to be getting people's ghost stories in my inbox until I die. Although, now that I think about it, no. No, no, no. All the details are at weirdchristmas.com. But if you have an idea for a short 350-word story about Christmas or any other winter holiday that goes in an unexpected direction, then write it. $50 for first place, $25 for second place. I'll read as many as I like on the podcast and publish them on the website, too. Again, check out weirdchristmas.com for more information. And second, thank you, thank you, thank you to those who bought me a coffee. I'm a touch overwhelmed and absolutely humbled by people's generosity so far. Thank you, of course, to all those who donated anonymously, especially the person who said they bought two, one for me and one for my wife, who's amazed that people actually offered me money. And thanks, too, to Eric H., who found me through the cards on Twitter. I'm glad I'm doing my part to distract everyone and help them stare at their phones. So back to ghost stories. We're going to read one together in a bit with some of my beautiful, lovely listener volunteers, just like we did last year with H.P. Lovecraft. But first, I wanted to know a bit more about the history of Christmas ghost stories. So I got in touch with Dr. Tara Moore, who's edited a collection called The Valancourt Book of Victorian Christmas Ghost Stories. There's a second volume edited by someone else, but hers is the best. She's also a Victorian specialist who focuses on Christmas traditions, and her book Victorian Christmas in Print devotes a whole chapter to the ghost stories that were printed and reprinted in the 19th century. I asked her why she thought they were so popular. When I was looking at the Christmas ghost story tradition, I was mostly starting with the 1700s. And I found evidence that in that time it was mostly an oral tradition. There were some print versions of it, but print was largely limited by people's economics. So in England they had that oral tradition of of telling stories by the fire because of that midwinter issue. And I don't know if I can emphasize enough how dark and cold it would be for them. Um, their houses that are not heated all that well. Um, 
and, you know, harvest is done. So the big activity of the agricultural culture is, is kind of over by Christmas time, by midwinter. And so they're, they're mostly trying to find jobs to do by the fire. And while they're sitting around the fire in the very old days, they, they probably didn't have access to books. So they were relying on stories from their, you know, from their town or just old stories. And it, it felt kind of, you know, the sun's gone down hours ago now. And they just wanted to kind of scare each other with that. So we don't know exactly why that trend developed. But we know that they didn't celebrate Halloween the way at all the way Americans celebrate it now. So, and that was kind of a more active time for them. Christmas was their let's take a break, let's pause, and I don't know they just decided to fill the time with scaring each other. So that's one of the reasons. And they didn't have a Santa Claus, and they they didn't really have Father Christmas developed at that time. Mm-hmm. So Christmas was very regional. Maybe in one part of the country they like they had this tradition where they they pour ale or beer on their trees and another one they put a cake on a um on a cow's horn to see how it flipped i mean and that wasn't nationwide it was very regionalized so um there wasn't just one way to celebrate christmas um in the 1700s for for people in england and that really developed later largely as a part of um a, a result of people writing stories about christmas and they started to decide oh this is how other people celebrate it i guess i should get it by the way, thank you for mentioning pouring the thing on the trees. I just did something about wassail <laughs> and about how there was the, the southern tradition in the apple orchards of going out and pouring cider and beer on trees to, to uh-huh. do something. So, yeah, so I'm not crazy. That's yeah. It wasn't a big thing for the ghost stories to be set at Christmas time. I mean, Dickens, of course, in A Christmas Carol has it set at Christmas time, but a lot of the majority of the ghost stories weren't particularly connected to Christmas. Is that right? That's right, yeah, and sometimes it seems like, if anything, they might focus on New Year a little bit, but that isn't even required. It would just be the fact that they're telling a ghost story, and it's the reader's experience of Christmas that's more important than the character's experience of Christmas. Is there only one, I think, in the Valancourt book you did that that mentions Christmas at all? Yeah, I have a hard time remembering right now. Um, I know that I was was hunting. (laughs) I was really hunting for those, but um, it wasn't important to the authors of these Christmas stories. And we have to remember, too, they were writing these Christmas ghost stories mostly in the summer and in the fall. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to prepare, you know, the content that would be coming out then in midwinter for their readers that included um, maybe some Christmas ghost story oral, um, you know, they might include details of characters telling stories. But we had a sense that this was an oral tradition that was slowly being translated into print. So um, that became, I guess, a little bit more prevalent in the early 1800s when we had um, the keepsake and other types of gift books or annuals that came out. This was before people were really giving a lot of Christmas presents, but they might be something that a middle-class or upper-class family would buy to put on their table to show their class. And so these would have a couple of ghost stories in them. They were um, they were Christmas presents to some degree. Some of them started to have names having to do with Christmas as, it, as uh, publishers were saying, oh, they're buying them for Christmas. And this is where we see um, Walter Scott writing a ghost story, and the expectation is that it might be consumed by readers during the Christmas period. So then the exciting you know, blossoming of the Christmas publishing happened just a little bit later when um, people like Charles Dickens noticed, like, oh, prices are going down. We can print more books. We can print books specifically for Christmas. And people are buying things for Christmas. So that that's really was the shift. People had a little bit more um, income that they could spend on Christmas purchases, and they also had greater literacy. And also some of the taxes changed um, the way that paper and, and shipping was, was uh, affecting book sales. So that all made for this beautiful place for Christmas to grow in the publishing world. And that, um, that's how it developed. So it was mostly just, um, you know, prices, literacy, and then 
publishers and authors slowly recognizing that this could be a commercial deal for them. That's really interesting. And so ghost stories themselves, were would they feature always, or was it something no. that happened during part of that explosion? The ghost stories, we have a sense those those were being told as oral stories in the 1700s. And so people who wanted to start printing and commercializing stories, they said, well, let's pick up these ghost stories. People tell them at Christmas time. Let's start to print them at Christmas time. And that way, even if you didn't have you know, friends to sit around the table with and, um, and scare in the dark by candlelight at Christmas time, you could pick up a book and eventually a magazine and you could kind of scare yourself with the help of these authors. So they were being, you know, very helpful here. You just had to plunk down your money and you could buy into that tradition. So it was sold as like um, a way to get um, connected with this old country house, um, aristocratic tradition. So some of the stories, especially early on, one by um, Washington Irving, who's known for writing Rip Van Winkle, he acted as this journalist going around and he described a country house Christmas and he featured in it these rich folks sitting around and scaring each other by telling ghost stories. So he was he was saying this is what the aristocrats do at Christmas time and then the middle class kind of wanted to do the same thing. So even if you didn't have a mansion or, or people who knew local lore and ghost stories, you could buy them. And maybe they weren't tied to your region anymore, but they were available, accessible in magazines and in some cases in books. And that's really interesting. The thing you mentioned too about how a lot of the ghost stories were tied very much to place and to sort of local lore. But maybe once it got into print, that kind of wasn't the case as much anymore. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So um, we have sometimes the authors are trying to pretend that they're telling this local legend when it's clear they just made it up entirely. But because people have a, have a sense that a story that's tied to a region or is more localized feels more authentic. And they really want to have that authentic, scary experience. So authors try to give it to them by kind of couching the story in this. I mean, this came from this, um, like this one town, or they'll, they'll suggest that they heard the story from someone who it happened to. So it's authentic in that way because it's secondhand from the person who experienced it. But, but really it's just, you know, just provided and commercialized for people who are now living in more urban settings. Maybe they're disconnected from where they had been in the country earlier or where they're families had been. So um, they're more part of this urban culture and they've, they've lost the connection to that, uh, that regional characteristic. Yeah, so they, they buy it instead. <laughs> gotcha. How much would you say, you know, Dickens really had an influence on that? Because one thing that's interesting is you talk about in the book about how popular imagination says that, oh, Dickens made the ghost story. But you talk about how there is, of course, a tradition that goes long before Dickens. Yeah, Dickens, he's very convenient to point to to say that he pumped up the Victorian Christmas ghost story, and he, I mean, he gets a lot of credit, and he deserves some of that credit, but he's really just part of this evolution of the publishing trend, um, and and he, ha- he saw it as a commercial op- opportunity, but in a way, it was a big failure for him right at the start, so it's surprising that he's seen as the person who, you know, waves the banner for a Victorian Christmas ghost. He does, he does start some Victorian Christmas publishing habit that people pick up and, and carry on, but he's just part of the larger, you know, the developing trend. He happened to come along at a time when, just when Christmas was uh, being accepted as, uh, you know, you don't celebrate just in your regional way, you start to celebrate in this national identity way. Yeah, it was a, it was a perfect time for, for someone to make this choice, and, and he was the one who did it. If you are interested at all, I can tell you about why The Christmas Carol was a financial disaster, if that's something that... Oh, yeah. No, I'm curious. A, I'm curious. So, yeah, the, um, so Charles Dickens, he had this great idea, like, let's take a ghost story, let's sell it so that we can commercialize the oral tradition, and he thought he'd make a lot of money on it. Um, 
So, but he wrote it and he published it really late. It was like um, December 19th, I think, in 1843 that it actually got published and was available for sale in very short amount of time between December 19th and Christmas Day. And you might expect people to still be reading. They had a little bit more of a break than we do maybe, so Mm -hmm. they could still be reading after Christmas Day. But he had these high expectations that he wanted it to be a small volume that was beautiful and that was hand-tinted. So he he demanded that it be sold for a relatively low price for the amount of craftsmanship that was going into the novel. And then he didn't really make much money on it because it cost so much to produce. So he sold 6,000 copies. He only made, made 137 pounds off of it. And then the irony is that it was so, you know, popular over the next couple months, people still read it into the spring, that they plagiarized it and made, turned it into um, plays, put it on the stage without his permission. So he ended up spending 700 pounds in court costs just to try to um, control this plagiarism. So it, was, it ended up being a, a failure for him and what he wanted it to be. I mean, he wanted it to be this huge money maker, but it, it wasn't. And neither were the rest of his Christmas books. They, they were expected, but he only did a couple more. And then he realized the real money was in periodicals. So that's where he turned his energies at Christmas time and with the Christmas ghost, including one specifically. One of his periodicals is called um, The Haunted House. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from all the year round. So he really digs back into the ghost story with that periodical, where every, sing- every single story in the periodical of that Christmas number is in some way is supposed to be kind of a haunting. But um, he uses it because he, Dickens himself doesn't believe in ghosts. And so he makes these all realistic uh, hauntings, psychological hauntings, not hauntings by spirit. So um, he's trying to undercut any belief in ghosts through this periodical later on. And that's interesting because in your Valancourt book that you edited, you make a point that, that a number of the ghost stories would follow that sort of trend of starting off seeming supernatural, but then there's some sort of very clear explanation of what happened at the end. And that was a trend as well. Right, yeah. So spiritualism in the Victorian period was kind of a blossoming fad, I guess. Um, we, we saw that with table knocking and people having seances in a way they hadn't before. So some of the authors who were not in favor of that trend felt the need to kind of undercut it by making sure that their their spirits were all tied to to real-life people who were somehow using spirits, maybe to gaslight someone, um, to trick them into doing something against, you know, their, their better judgment. So um, they would usually figure out in, in that type of story that it wasn't a ghost. So you never quite knew, are you starting a ghost story that has a real ghost or not? So who were some of the most famous ones that followed after him? Yeah, who wrote, um, who also wrote ghost stories? Yeah. Um, yeah, so some of the people who, who maximized on this were... Um, uh, Elizabeth Gaskell, she wrote in one uh, uh, the old nurse's story, and that showed up in one of Dickens' later Christmas numbers of his magazine. That's where he went with with um, Christmas stories later on. He, he printed them in periodicals. And so hers is a very well-known, often anthologized uh, ghost story that, that she wrote there. She's, she's also known for writing three-volume Victorian novels, so um, this, this happens to be one of her shorter stories. And then um, we also have Arthur Conan Doyle writing them later also, and some people who maybe are not quite as well-known, but were, were well-known by the Victorians for, um, for their other novels, their very long novels. But these would just be short ghost stories that would show up in periodicals. People like Ellen Wood and Margaret Oliphant, Ada Bousson. So books like those were also writing, also writing them. And then you'd have so many showing up in newspapers um, and other magazines, but they, they might not have any attribution given to them. I really do enjoy Elizabeth Gaskell's The Old Nurse's Story. Um, I think she does a nice job of bringing in some gothic horror into this 
tale. And to be honest, I'm always scared by ghost children. So um, in that one, I think the, the scariest of the stories in there are, are hers and also The Doll's Ghost, which is by F. Marion Crawford, and it's much later in the century. But anytime there's you know spooky little children ghosts, I think, or, or dolls, <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty scary. Some of the other ones, they might not feel as scary to us today, some of the ones that, I, um, that I've edited in there, but they're very representative of the different types of scares or um, cultural trends that the Victorians were interested in when it came to ghost stories, with whether it's, um, you know, arguing against spiritualism, as we discussed, or if it's um, finding wills or enjoying reunions, which are often part of the Christmas story. So if they can work those into the ghost story, then the Victorians would have found that very satisfying. Thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. Oh, yes. Thanks for um, digging in and learning more about Victorian Christmas ghosts. So let's be honest, you probably hoped deep down that I was going to find someone who'd say that all this talk of Christmas ghost stories was leading to something really fun and mysterious, like how the midwinter season in England was still mystically tied to dark pagan rituals, or that they had a better sense that the veil between our world and some other world gets thinner during this time, the kind of legends that get thrown around about Halloween. But I'm throwing cold water on that idea, at least a bit. You know why ghost stories got popular in Victorian England? Money. Money for the writers for middle-class people who were really self-conscious about trying to look more respectable. It was about celebrating Christmas in the ways that they thought the old rich folk did. And as for why the English had that tradition before it became so popular in Victorian periodicals, well, like Dr. Moore said, we just don't really know. Maybe they were just cold and bored. Sorry, guys. I guess Christmas isn't a time of mystery and wonder, but disenchantment. Same old truth of Santa all over again. But who am I kidding? This is also Krampus time, longest night of the year time, a time that's all about those deep primal desires like greed and gluttony and clinging seriously codependently tight to family and friends. Christmas is a scary time. And maybe before the Victorians turned ghost stories into a fad, they came from a different, darker place. In fact, I'm sure of it, but that'll have to wait for another podcast. In the meantime, let's hear a scary story. A bunch of brave folk were kind enough to read a story with me, just like we did last year with Lovecraft's The Festival. This time, I picked another writer in Lovecraft's vein, Algernon Blackwood. His most famous story is called The Willows, and go read it as soon as this podcast is done. It's terrifyingly wonderful. But it's also too long to do here. So I picked a ghost story he wrote that's not technically Victorian, but it's close enough. And it actually happens on Christmas Eve, which, like Dr. Moore said, is pretty unusual for Christmas ghost stories. So settle in close to your fire, grab a cup of something warm, and get ready to hear Blackwood's The Kit Bag. When the words not guilty sounded through the crowded courtroom that dark December afternoon, Arthur Wilbraham, the great criminal KC and leader for the triumphant defense, was represented by his junior. But Johnson, his private secretary, carried the verdict across to his chambers like lightning. It's what we expected, I think said the barrister without emotion, and personally I'm glad the case is over. There was no particular sign of pleasure that his defense of John Turk, the murderer, on a plea of insanity, had been successful, for no doubt he felt, as everybody who had watched the case felt, that no man had ever better deserved the gallows. I'm glad too, said Johnson. He'd sat in the court for ten days watching the face of the man who'd carried out with callous detail one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders of recent years. The counsel glanced up at his secretary. They were more than employer-employed. For family and other reasons, they were friends. Ah, I remember, yes, he said with a kind smile. And you want to get away for Christmas. You're going to skate and ski in the Alps, aren't you? If I was your age, I'd come with you. Johnson laughed shortly. He was a young man of 26, with a delicate face like a girl's. 
I can catch the morning boat now, he said, but that's not the reason I'm glad the trial's over. I'm glad it's over because I've seen the last of that man's dreadful face. It positively haunted me. Bat white skin with the black hair brushed low over the forehead. It's a thing I shall never forget, and the description of the way the dismembered body was crammed and packed with lime into that... Don't dwell on it, my dear fellow, interrupted the other, looking at him curiously out of his keen eyes. Don't think about it. Such pictures have a trick of coming back when one least wants them. He paused a moment. Now go, he added presently, and enjoy your holiday. I shall want all your energy for my parliamentary work when you get back, and don't break your neck skiing. Johnson shook hands and took his leave. At the door he turned suddenly. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you, he said. Would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? It's too late to get one tonight, and I'll leave in the morning before the shops are open. Of course, I'll send Henry over with it to your rooms. You shall have it the moment I get home. I promise to take great care of it, said Johnson gratefully, delighted to think that within thirty hours he'd be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the high Alps in winter. The thought of that criminal court was like an evil dream in his mind. He dined at his club and went on to Bloomsbury, where he occupied the top floor in one of those old gaunt houses in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his own was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. It was cheerless, and he looked forward heartily to a change. The night was even more cheerless. It was miserable, and few people were about. A cold, sleety rain was driving down the streets before the keenest east wind he had ever felt. It howled dismally among the big, gloomy houses of the great squares, and when he reached his rooms, he heard it whistling and shouting over the world of black roofs beyond his windows. In the hall he met his landlady, shading a candle from the droughts with her thin hand. This comes by a man from Mr. Wilburham, sir. She pointed to what was evidently the kit bag, and Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. I shall be going abroad in the morning for ten days, Mrs. Monks, he said. I'll leave an address for the letters. And I hope you'll have a Merry Christmas, sir, she said in a raucous, wheezy voice that suggested spirits, and better weather than this. I hope so, too, replied her lodger, shuddering a little as the wind went roaring down the street outside. When he got upstairs, he heard the sleet volleying against the window panes. He put his kettle on to make a cup of hot coffee, and then set about putting a few things in order for his absence. And now I must pack, such as my packing is, he laughed to himself, set to work at once. He liked the packing, for it brought the snow mountains so vividly before him, and made him forget the unpleasant scenes of the past ten days. Besides, it was not elaborate in nature. His friend had lent him the very thing, a stout canvas kit bag, sack-shaped, with holes round the neck for the brass bar and padlock. It was a bit shapeless, true, and not much to look at, but its capacity was unlimited, and there was no need to pack carefully. He shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap and gloves, his skates and climbing boots, his sweaters, snow boots and air caps, and then on top of these he piled his woolen shirts and underwear, his thick socks, putties, and knickerbockers. The dress suit came next, in case the hotel people dressed for dinner, and then, thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused a moment to reflect. That's the worst of these kit bags, he mused vaguely, standing in the center of the sitting room, where he had come to fetch some string. It was after ten o'clock. A furious gust of wind rattled the windows, as though to hurry him up, and he thought with pity of the poor Londoners, whose Christmas would be sent in such a climate, whilst he was skimming over snowy slopes and bright sunshine, and dancing in the evening with rosy-cheeked girls. Ah, that reminded him. He must put in his dancing pumps and evening socks. He crossed over from the sitting room to the cupboard on the landing where he kept his linen. And as he did so, he heard someone coming softly up the stairs. He stood a moment on the landing to listen. It was Mrs. Monk's step, he thought. She must be coming up at the last post. 
But then the steps ceased suddenly, and he heard no more. They were at least two flights down, and he came to the conclusion they were too heavy to be those of the bilbilous landlady. No doubt they belonged to a late lodger who had mistaken his floor. He went into his bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts as best he could. The kit bag by this time was two-thirds full and stood upright on its own base like a sack of flour. For the first time he noticed it was old and dirty, the canvas faded and worn, and that it had obviously been subjected to rather rough treatment. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him, certainly not a new one, or one that his chief valued. He gave the matter a passing thought and went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who it could have been wandering down below, for Mrs. Monks had not come up with letters, and the floor was empty and unfurnished. From time to time, moreover, he was almost certain he heard a soft tread of someone padding about over the bare boards, cautiously, stealthily, as silently as possible. And further, the sounds had been lately coming distinctly nearer. For the first time in his life, he began to feel a little creepy. Then, as though to emphasize this feeling, an odd thing happened. As he left the bedroom, having just packed his recalcitrant white shirts, he noticed that the top of the kit bag lopped over towards him with an extraordinary resemblance to a human face. The canvas fell into a fold like a nose and forehead, and the brass rings for the padlock just filled the position of the eyes. A shadow, or was it a travel stain? For he could not tell exactly looked like hair. It gave him rather a turn, for it was so absurdly, so outrageously like the face of John Turk the murderer. He laughed and went into the front room where the light was stronger. That horrid case has got on my mind, he thought. I shall be glad of a change of scene and air. In the sitting room, however, he was not pleased to hear again that stealthy tread upon the stairs and to realize that it was much closer than before, as well as unmistakably real. And this time he got up and went out to see who it could be creeping about on the upper staircase at so late an hour. But the sound ceased. There was no one visible on the stairs. He went to the floor below not without trepidation, and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the empty rooms of the unoccupied suite. There was not a stick of furniture large enough to hide a dog. Then he called over the banisters to Mrs. Monks, but there was no answer, and his voice echoed down into the dark vault of the house and was lost in the roar of the gale that howled outside. Everyone was in bed and asleep. Everyone except himself and the owner of this soft and stealthy tread. My absurd imagination, I suppose, he thought. It must have been the wind after all. Although it seemed so very real and close, I thought. He went back to his packing. It was by this time getting on towards midnight. He drank his coffee up and lit another pipe, the last before turning in. 
It is difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes. Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, as ice gathers upon the surface of still water, but often so lightly that they claim no definite recognition from the consciousness. Then a point is reached where the accumulated impressions become a definite emotion and the mind realizes that something has happened. With something of a start, Johnson suddenly recognized that he felt nervous, oddly nervous. Also, that for some time past, the causes of this feeling had been gathering slowly in his mind, but that he had only just reached the point where he was forced to acknowledge them. It was a singular and curious malaise that had come over him, and he hardly knew what to make of it. He felt as though he were doing something that was strongly objected to by another person. Another person, moreover, who had some right to object. It was a most disturbing and disagreeable feeling, not unlike the persistent promptings of conscience. Almost, in fact, as if he were doing something he knew to be wrong. Yet, though he searched vigorously and honestly in his mind, he could nowhere lay his finger upon the secret of this growing uneasiness, and it perplexed him. More, it distressed and frightened him. Pure nerves, I suppose, he said aloud with a forced laugh. Mountain air will cure all that. Ah, he added, still speaking to himself, and that reminds me, my snow glasses. He was standing by the door of the bedroom during this brief soliloquy. And as he passed quickly towards the sitting room to fetch them from the cupboard, he saw out of the corner of his eye the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs a few feet from the top. It was someone in a stooping position with one hand on the banisters and the face peering up towards the landing. And at the same moment, he heard a shuffling footstep. The person who had been creeping about below all this time had at last come up to his own floor. Who in the world could it be? And what in the name of heaven did he want? Johnson caught his breath sharply and stood stock still. Then, after a few seconds' hesitation, he found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs, he saw to his utter amazement, were empty. There was no one. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him, and something about the muscles of his legs gave a little and grew weak. For the space of several minutes, he peered steadily into the shadows that congregated about the top of the staircase where he had seen the figure, and then he walked fast, almost ran in fact, into the light of the front room. But hardly had he passed inside the doorway when he heard someone come up the stairs behind him with a quick bound and go swiftly into his bedroom. It was a heavy, but at the same time, a stealthy footstep, the tread of somebody who did not wish to be seen. And it was at this precise moment that the nervousness he had hitherto experienced leapt the boundary line and entered the state of fear, almost of acute, unreasoning fear. Before it turned into terror, there was a further boundary to cross. 
and beyond that again lay the region of pure horror. Johnson's position was an unenviable one. By Jove, that was someone on the stairs then, he muttered, his flesh crawling all over. And whoever it was has now gone into my bedroom. His delicate, pale face turned absolutely white. And for some minutes, he hardly knew what to think or do. Then, he realized intuitively that delay only set a premium upon fear, and he crossed the landing boldly and went straight into the other room, where, a few seconds before, the steps had disappeared. Who's there? Is that you, Mrs. Monks? He called aloud as he went and heard the first half of his words echo down the empty stairs, while the second half fell dead against the curtains in a room that apparently held no other human figure than his own. Who's there? He called again in a voice unnecessarily loud and that only just held firm. What do you want here? The curtain swayed very slightly, and, as he saw it, his heart felt as if it almost missed a beat, yet he dashed forward and drew them aside with a rush. A window, streaming with rain, was all that met his gaze. He continued his search, but in vain. The cupboards held nothing but rows of clothes, hanging motionless and under the bed there was no sign of anyone hiding. He stepped backwards into the middle of the room, and, as he did so, something all but tripped him up. Turning with a sudden spring of alarm, he saw the kit bag. Odd, he thought. That's not where I left it. A few moments before it had surely been on his right, between the bed and the bath, he did not remember having moved it. It was very curious. What in the world was the matter with everything? Were all his senses gone queer? A terrific gust of wind tore at the windows, dashing the sleet against the glass with the force of small gunshots, and then fled away howling dismally over the waste of Bloomsbury roofs. A sudden vision of the channel next day rose in his mind, and recalled him sharply to reality. There's no one here at any rate that's quite clear, he exclaimed aloud. Yet at the time he uttered them, he knew perfectly well that his words were not true and that he did not believe them himself. He felt exactly as though someone was hiding close about him, watching all his movements, trying to hinder his packing in some way. And two of my senses, he added, keeping up the pretense, have played me the most absurd tricks. The steps I heard and the figure I saw were both entirely imaginary. He went back to the front room, poked the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it to think. What impressed him more than anything else was the fact that the kit bag was no longer where he had left it. It had been dragged nearer to the door. What happened afterwards that night happened, of course, to a man already excited by fear, 
and was perceived by a man that had not the full and proper control, therefore, of the senses. Outwardly, Johnson remained calm and master of himself to the end, pretending to the very last that everything he witnessed had a natural explanation or was merely delusions of his tired nerves. But inwardly, in his very heart, he knew all along that someone had been hiding downstairs in the empty suite when he came in, that this person had watched his opportunity and then stealthily made his way up to the bedroom, and that all he saw and heard afterwards from the moving of the kit bag to, well, to the other things this story has to tell, were caused directly by the presence of this invisible person. And it was here, just when he most desired to keep his mind and thoughts controlled, that the vivid pictures received day after day upon the mental plates exposed in the courtroom of the old Bailey, came strongly to light and developed themselves in the dark room of his inner vision. Unpleasant, haunting memories have a way of coming to life again just when the mind least desires them. In the silent watches of the night, on sleepless pillows, during the lonely hours spent by sick and dying beds. And so now, in the same way, Johnson saw nothing but the dreadful face of John Turk, the murderer, lowering at him from every corner of his mental field of vision, the white skin, the evil eyes, and the fringe of black hair low over the forehead. All the pictures of those ten days in court crowded back into his mind unbidden and very vivid. This is all rubbish and nerves, he exclaimed at length, springing with sudden energy from his chair. I shall finish my packing and go to bed. I'm overwrought, overtired. No doubt at this rate I shall hear steps and things all night. But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up his field glasses and walked across to the bedroom, humming a music hall song as he went, a trifle too loud to be natural. And the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold about his heart, and he felt that every hair on his head stood up. The kit bag lay close in front of him, several feet nearer to the door than he had left it, and just over its crumpled top, he saw a head and face slowly sinking down out of sight, as though someone were crouching behind it to hide. And at the same moment, a sound like a long drawn sigh was distinctly audible in the still air about him between the gusts of the storm outside. 
Johnson had more courage and willpower than the girlish indecision of his face indicated. But at first, such a wave of terror came over him that for some seconds he could do nothing but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his back and legs, and he was conscious of a foolish, almost a hysterical impulse to scream aloud. That sigh seemed in his very ear, and the air still quivered with it. It was unmistakably a human sigh. Who's there? he said, at length finding his voice. But though he meant to speak with loud decision, the tones came out instead in a faint whisper, for he had partly lost the control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward so that he could see all round and over the kit bag. Of course, there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. He put out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack, where it had fallen over, being only three parts full. And then he saw for the first time that round the inside, some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded bloodstain. He uttered a scream and drew back his hands as if they had been burnt. At the same moment, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch forward towards the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching with his hands for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he realised, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut to with a resounding bang. At the same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch, and the light in the room went out. It was an awkward and disagreeable predicament, and if Johnson had not been possessed of real pluck, he might have done all manner of foolish things. As it was, however, he pulled himself together and groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the light on again. But the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging on it a swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets, so that it was some moments before he found the switch. And in those few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall over the boundary into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being. In his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall, he nearly scraped the nails from his fingers, but even then, in those frenzied moments of alarm, so swift and alert are the impressions of a man keyed up by a vivid emotion, he had time to realize that he dreaded the return of the light and that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful screen of darkness. It was but the impulse of a moment, however, and before he had time to act upon it, he had yielded automatically to the original desire, and the room was flooded again with light. But the second instinct had been right. It would have been better for him to have stayed in the shelter of the kind darkness, for there, close before him, bending over the half-packed kit bag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk, the murderer. Not three feet from him, the man stood, the fringe of black hair marked plainly against the pallor of the forehead, the whole horrible presentment of the scoundrel as vivid as he had seen him day after day in the old bailey, when he stood there in the dock, cynical and callous, under the very shadow of the gallows. 
In a flash, Johnson realised what it all meant. The dirty and much-used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful, stretched condition of the bulging sides. He remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed into a canvas bag for burial, the ghastly, dismembered fragments forced with lime into this very bag, and the bag itself produces evidence. It all came back to him, clear as day. Very softly and stealthily, his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door, but before he could actually turn it, the very thing that he most of all dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. At the same moment, that heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into words, It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson just remembered clawing the door open and then falling in a heap upon the floor of the landing as he tried frantically to make his way into the front room. He remained unconscious for a long time, and it was still dark when he opened his eyes and realized that he was lying, stiff and bruised, on the cold boards. Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, and he promptly fainted again. When he woke the second time, the wintry dawn was just beginning to peep in at the windows, painting the stairs a cheerless, dismal gray, and he managed to crawl into the front room and cover himself with an overcoat in the armchair, where at length he fell asleep. A great clamor woke him. He recognized Mrs. Monk's voice, loud and voluble. "'What? You ain't been to bed, sir? Are you ill, or has anything happened?' And there's an urgent gentleman to see you, though it ain't seven o'clock yet, and... Who is it? he stammered. I'm all right, thanks. Fell asleep in my chair, I suppose. Someone from Mr. Wilbram's, and he says he ought to see you quick before you go abroad, and I told him... Show him up, please, at once, said Johnson, whose head was whirling and his mind was still full of dreadful visions. Mr. Wilbraham's man came in with many apologies and explained briefly and quickly that an absurd mistake had been made and that the wrong kit bag had been sent over the night before. Henry somehow got a hold of the one that came over from the courtroom, and Mr. Wilbraham only discovered it when he saw his own lying in his room, and asked why it had not gone to you, the man said. Oh, said Johnson, stupidly. And he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir, I'm afraid, the man continued, without the ghost of an expression on his face. The one John Turk packed the dead body in. Mr. Wilbraham's awful upset about it, sir, and told me to come over first thing this morning with the right one, as you were leaving by the boat. He pointed to a clean-looking kit bag on the floor, which he had just brought. And I was to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. For some minutes, Johnson could not find his voice. At last, he pointed in the direction of his bedroom. Perhaps you would kindly unpack it for me? Just empty the things out on the floor. The man disappeared into the other room and was gone for five minutes. Johnson heard the shifting to and fro of the bag and the rattle of the skates and boots being unpacked. "'Thank you, sir,' the man said, returning with the bag folded over his arm. "'And can I do anything more to help you, sir?' "'What is it?' asked Johnson, seeing that he still had something he wished to say. The man shuffled and looked mysterious. "'Beg pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought you maybe like to know what's happened.' "'Yes. John Turk killed himself last night with poison, immediately on getting his release, and he left a note for Mr. Wilbraham, saying as he'd be much obliged if they'd have him put away, same as the woman he murdered.' in the old kit bag. "'What time did he do it?' asked Johnson. Ten o'clock last night, sir,' the warder says. Thanks to all these folk for reading. Bitter One Stuff on Tumblr, Jenny Frey, at Really Jenny, G-I-N-N-Y on Twitter, Emily DuPont, 
at emd15g on Twitter, Cryptsy on Tumblr, Tessa Jansen or at the X. S-C-H-A on Twitter. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Michael May at Michael May Comics with an X on Twitter. You guys really are the best, and like last year, I'm pretty overwhelmed that I got as many volunteers as I did. So go to the notes for the show at weirdchristmas.com and give them all a follow. Remember that if you like the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. Or go to weirdchristmas.com where I've got a link. It's a small thing, but it means a lot to me. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts, which used to be iTunes, or just send me a note at weirdxmas at gmail.com. Got an idea for a podcast? Found a weird card I've never shared on the socials, as the kids say? Let me know. The weird old vintage cards are flowing on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and even Instagram, where at least I'm giving things a solid try this year. And as I've said before, I'm part of a cool new thing called the Christmas Podcast Network. That's christmaspodcastnetwork.com. A bunch of us Christmas people got together and started a site where you can find all kinds of holiday listening goodness in one place. One of the ones that just started this year is called Tinsel Tunes, which is one of my new favorites, so take a listen. Hi everyone, Dwayne Bailey here from the Tinsel Tunes podcast. Did you know Silent Night is the most recorded holiday song of all time? Over 137,000 times and counting. Come join us each month as I dive into Christmas music and reveal lots of interesting facts like that. Also, learn about your old favourites, as well as getting a heads up for the new music each season. We're on all the podcast networks like iTunes, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. Check out our website, tinseltunes.com, for all the links as well as our socials. I look forward to seeing you all soon. Next time we'll have more holiday weirdness, so until then, don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack.